Today's passage in Mark chapter 13 um, is a bit like last week. It's complex. It's not simple. Today uh, we will be covering verses 24 through 37. If you're using a blue Bible like this one, it's page 942. And uh, next week's passage is to be determined. I think I know where we're going to go with it, but it's not settled yet. We are not going to start Mark 14 yet. We're going to put it off just for a little bit. And so, last week, I always think of titles after the sermon is preached. And last week, on Monday... The day after Chuck taught on the first half of chapter 13, I thought of a good title. The End of the World, Part 1. So I want to title today's message, The End of the World, Part 2. And so last week we saw that it was a prophetic passage. And there is nothing simple about prophecy. We must approach the Scriptures with great humility at all times, but particularly when we are looking at a prophetic passage like the ones that we have before us today and like what we had last week. Sometimes Jesus dealt with prophecies that had been given way before He was alive, and those He, he had a way of dealing with them that No one else had. And obviously his way is the right way. He's the best theologian I've ever known or ever heard of or ever read. And so when he interprets something, or when one of the writers of the Bible interprets something, we go with what they say. So in Hosea chapter 11, which was about 800 years before Jesus came on the scene, um, Hosea prophesied and he said, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, everyone, all the Jewish people, they were familiar with that, and they thought that Hosea was referring to a past event. They thought that Hosea was referring to God delivering uh, the Jewish people from slavery in Egypt and bringing them to the Promised Land. Out of Egypt I called my son. But when Jesus was a baby, and Matthew records this in Matthew chapter 2, when Jesus was a baby, King Herod decided to kill all the baby boys in the kingdom, and God warned them. So baby Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, they left where they were, and they went to Egypt. And believe it or not, Jesus actually knows what it's like to be a refugee. And so he was a refugee for a time, but after Herod died, God told him that they could go back. So they went back to their hometown of Nazareth. And Matthew writes, this this happened to fulfill... What the prophet Hosea wrote, out of Egypt I have called my son. See, the Jews had one understanding of the prophecy. Jesus has a different understanding. Neither of them are wrong. But I share this story with you to share that sometimes we can have what we think is a really good understanding of what's written or what's prophesied. And we can be totally off. So there's another thing that makes prophecy a little bit complicated in the life of Jesus. Uh, You know, in the Old Testament, we have books like Isaiah and Hosea. And there's these long passages of all these prophecies. And what these things mean are not simple to anyone. 
But when Jesus was alive, there was a time, it's recorded in Luke chapter 4, there was a time when he, he was in the synagogue, he was teaching everybody, and he told them, or he read a long passage from Isaiah chapter 61. And the Jews were familiar with this passage. What Jesus said, after he read it, he said, this is fulfilled in your hearing today. What he was saying was that I am fulfilling this particular prophecy, and I am fulfilling it right now. So for the Jews, they looked at that paragraph and they thought everything that was in that paragraph of prophecy would happen in one event. That was their understanding. When it talks about the day of the Lord, when it talks about the Messiah, when it talks about God setting up his kingdom, they were expecting everything to happen in one event. Well, when Jesus quoted that prophecy from Isaiah chapter 61, he stopped He was about three-quarters of the way through it. And he didn't finish the last 20 or 25% of it. His view on prophecy is quite different from the Jewish people of that day. And I believe in many ways quite different from ours. The part that he did not quote from Isaiah 61, the part that he said is not being fulfilled today, we now know in 2018, we have good reason to believe that that's going to happen in the second coming. So the Jews understood everything to be happening at one time. And Jesus' understanding, and what we can know today because we're between the first and second coming, is that he's been here once, he did a lot of things he he promised to do, but he's not done yet. And we are in the place right now where we have to wait. Sometimes at my house, we well, two or three times a month, we order food from a company called Vitacost. And it's the type of thing, you know, you can't pick up a food line or Dollar General. And um, anyway, so we, we get these shipments in, and they're usually really quick delivering the order. So Jen goes on, she places the order, maybe it's a $50 order, and a box comes. Well, one time we had our meal planned for the week, and we were counting on some of the ingredients in that box to be part of our dinner. So the box came, I set it on the counter, Jennifer went to make dinner, she already had it started... And she remembered, oh, I got to get some of the ingredients out of that box. And she went and opened up the box. And not everything that she ordered was in that box. She wondered, have they forgot to ship me what I ordered? And the packing slip that came in the box, it didn't have the item on it that she was expecting. But she was pretty sure that she ordered it. So she went in and to the computer and got online and she saw that the, the order that she made is coming in two deliveries. So one time, one delivery, and that's good because we've got some of the food that we need. We got some of what we were expecting, but we still had to wait for other things that we were expecting. So this passage, all of, well, this passage and what Chuck taught on last week is... There's two events. But for the four disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, the four disciples that Jesus was speaking to, they most likely had in their mind that this was all one event. And the way the whole conversation got started in Mark chapter 13 is that they were walking out of the temple. They had been there all day. We have covered... It's Tuesday, the week before he die, of the week that he dies. This is our eighth Sunday covering the events and the teachings of Tuesday of that week. But they've been in there all day, and they're walking out. 
And the disciples say, oh, look at these big grand buildings. Isn't this amazing? Isn't this beautiful? And Jesus tells them in his direct, gentle, but kind of in-your-face kind of way, he says, all this stuff is going to come down. All these buildings, they're just, they're going to be flattened. And the disciples ask, and Mark records this, he says, what will be the, or when will this be, and how can we get, or how can we know it's about to happen? What will be the sign of their coming? Well, when Matthew records the exact same conversation, there's another part of it that Mark doesn't tell us about. And in Matthew it says, when will be the end of the age? So everything that Chuck talked about last week and everything that we're going over today stemmed from this conversation that started as they were going out of the temple. Jesus told them it's all going to come down. They ask, when will these things be? And they think that everything that Jesus is talking about has to do with the very end of the world. And so we want to approach prophecy very carefully today and at all times. We must approach this with great humility. And the truth is, we need to be careful not to do what some of our brothers and sisters in Christ have done. We need to keep in mind that we are not on the planning committee. But we are on the welcoming committee. So we are not on the planning committee, but we are on the welcoming committee. And as I teach through this passage after our discussion, some things I will teach with great conviction. I will be just as sure of it as I am sure that the lights in this room are on. And, but there will be many other things where I have an opinion and I have an idea and I think I'm right. But there's a high likelihood that I'm totally wrong. Okay, so you'll probably notice the different things as we go through the passage today. So let's, uh, let's read together chapter 13, beginning in verse 24 through 37. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So there's a lot here. Let's ask the questions. What does this passage say? 
Let's ask the question, what do we think these things mean? And we're going to get different answers for that, and that's okay. Let's ask the question, are there any commands to obey? And is there any good news to share with anyone in this, uh, from this story? So uh, take a few minutes to read to yourself, and when the time's right, your table leader will start your discussion. So let me first say that I love seeing God's people of all ages and of all backgrounds reading the Bible and saying, the Bible says, and then reading the next verse and being like, I don't know what the Bible says, but I don't have a clue what that means. I love hearing God's people ask questions. I find that 99% of questions are not stupid. Okay? <laughs> and I love it when multiple people at the table are ready to share something in response to that question. We're doing it, church. We're doing it. When you have that hands-on ability, you learn to handle the Word of God. And you've had your hands on it today, you've had your mind wrapped around it today, and it's beautiful. You're not going to learn how to drive a nail if you don't hold that hammer in your hand. I don't care how many YouTube videos you watch or how many books you read on driving a nail. You've got to put that thing in your hand. So I am excited to, to, to see the level of participation and to see how you're thinking about it and even how you're preparing for our discussions before you show up. So today there's a lot of good news and I'm going to leave you with many questions that are unanswered. The good news is that Jesus is going to come back Okay? The good news is that he's already been here. And today we're going to look at both the first coming and the second coming. Let's jump into verses 24 through 27 first. Mark writes, or Jesus says, But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. (coughs) So, in those days, verse 24 starts out, after that tribulation. What tribulation is being referred to? Last week, Brother Chuck presented some ideas that were brand new to him. He had always understood the first half of this chapter to be referring to a period of seven years in the future known as the Great Tribulation. And as he got into studying it, he began to wrestle with it and decided that Jesus was talking about something more immediate. One of the temptations of our American Christian culture is to look at prophetic passages and to watch CNN... Or read the newspaper. Or somehow make everything about us in here and now. While we have a great viewpoint 2,000 years later that's helpful. We must do our best to put ourselves in the shoes of the people that are in the story. We must do our best to think about the things that are going on there and at that time. And when it says that tribulation, it is... Bad Bible interpretation to assume 
that Jesus is talking about some period that hasn't happened yet when he's just told them about one of the worst things that could ever happen, that the temple and that the entire city of Jerusalem would be trampled and desecrated and destroyed and that all those stones would fall down and that none of them would be stacked upon one another. Horrible, awful tribulation. One of the worst things that's ever happened in the history of mankind, as I believe verse 20 says that we covered last week. So, but in those days, after that tribulation, after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, what's going to happen? The sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. And the powers in the heavens will be shaken. This is... And then in verse 26 it says, Jesus is coming back in clouds of great power and great glory. So... This is very different than Jesus' first coming, is it not? When He came the first time, there was one star. It was the brightest star that anyone had ever seen. And it spoke to the world and it said that the light of the world is coming. It was the symbolic of so many things about Christ's first coming. And here in the second coming, all the stars, all the lights in the heavens are going out. Just as if Jesus himself flipped off a light switch. The Bible says that he's in verse 26 that he is coming in clouds with great power and great glory. Um, And it says, verse 26, they will see the Son of Man. This is a huge event. When you look at other verses in the Bible that talk about the second coming, everyone's going to see it as. From the east to the west, all tribes, every, every culture, every nation is going to see this. And I, I, I notice that that is quite different than his first coming also. Because when he came first, he came with very humble circumstances. And the majority of the world, over 99% of the world's population, didn't even know he was there. Just very few people. And an angelic choir showed up to the, to the shepherds at his first coming and announced his birth and, and sang praises to God. And, but with that spectacular exception, his first entry into this world was rather quiet. It was with very humble circumstances. And in verse 26, verse 27, we see elements of judgment coming. And one of the things I realized over the last couple of weeks looking at this is that many times in the Bible, whenever sin is going to be judged, darkness comes. We see in the first coming of Christ, He's on the cross on Friday. He's on the cross and He's dying. And the Bible says that from 12 noon to 3 p.m., darkness was over the face of the entire land. So what is happening in the spiritual realm that is real affects what happens in the physical world that we live in. Now you ask me, you know, well you you see in verses 26 that there's judgment. And you ask me what judgment was taking place at the first coming to bring the darkness. Well, Well, he was judged in our place. You see, He was judged in our place. But here, He comes to judge all of those who do not know Him, who have rejected His truth, and whose sins have not been forgiven. So darkness comes because there's judgment. But even more than that, I think darkness comes because the stars and the heavens and the sun that we think is so bright 
is absolutely nothing to the glory of God and the light that we are going to see when He returns. It's going to be the most beautiful things that, thing that anyone who loves God has ever beheld. It'll be fear and trembling for those who have rejected God and those who aren't prepared for His coming. But for us who are ready, it is going to be beautiful. And the sun, we aren't going to see it because the light, and I believe also what, what, what many refer to as the Shekinah glory of God, is going to be so bright and so beautiful that the moon will not give any light. The sun will not give light. And the stars will fall from heaven. And it will be such a spectacular event. The verse 25 the powers in the heavens will be shaken. <clears throat> now I see in verse 26 that He's coming in clouds. Notice that it's not saying He's coming through the clouds. But He's coming in the clouds. He's coming with the clouds. So He bring cloud, brings clouds with Him. In the Old Testament especially, we see so many times where God is present doing something significant and clouds are around. We see God pull His people and deliver them out of slavery in Egypt and He led them to the promised land that He was given them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. God was in the cloud. They didn't know where to go. The people that He was leading through the wilderness had never, ever been in this part of the world before as they were making the trip from Egypt to the promised land. How did God lead them? How did He show up? He showed up in a pillar of cloud. You may remember that Moses went up to the top of the mountain. We call it, uh, the name of the mountain is Mount Sinai. But Moses went up there and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Well, God met with him and Moses saw God in such a fantastic way that very few people, perhaps no one in human history has ever seen God the way that Moses saw God on top of that mountain. How did he come down upon the mountain? He came down on the mountain in a cloud. His presence was in the cloud. And then God instructed them to build the tabernacle and eventually the temple for Jewish worship. And it was in a cloud that he dwelled at the entrance of the tabernacle and in the Holy of Holies. And when King Solomon dedicated the temple to God, the Shekinah glory of God, the cloud of God came and filled the temple. So we see clouds very commonly associated with this fantastic and marvelous, incredible presence of God. Pastor Tim Keller says that at the second coming, Jesus is going to, with this cloud, with his presence and with his holiness and his righteousness... He's going to turn the entire world into a holy of holies. And if you're familiar with the temple, that was the place where God dwelt most fully. It was the purest place in all the world. And when Jesus comes, he's taking that little tiny place and he's making the entire world a holy of holies. And that is good news because he is going to make every wrong thing right. Are you hurting? Are you suffering? Do you feel the pain of this world? Do you see the wreck that we have made on this planet? Do you watch the news and wonder why we have civil wars and why we have refugees and why we have corruption and why men hit women and why people abuse children and do all these things? Jesus is going to make all of that right when he comes. And the pain and the brokenness is going to be gone. Verse 27. Then He will send out the angels. So He's going to return in uh, clouds, power, and great glory. 
Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. So the angels are, are, are going to go and they're going to gather the elect from the four winds. What are the four winds? That's just figurative speech for saying every part of the earth. And we see that at the, confirmed at the end of verse 27 when he says from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. So that phrase four winds, don't get lost with that. He's just saying the whole world. But then there's that word elect. And that's a word that, that some of us aren't very familiar with. Someone asked the question at our table earlier. What is the elect? What does it mean? Brother Chuck mentioned it a little bit last week. It's an important word in the Bible. It's not necessarily a simple concept once you start thinking about the implications of it. But for our purposes today, what I want to share with you, who are the elect? The Bible tells us that God has elected three people or three groups. In the Old Testament, and and sometimes in the New Testament, we see the elect being referred to as the Jewish people. God chose that nation when He chose Abraham and his family back in Genesis 12. We also see the Bible refer to Jesus as being the elect. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the one that God has chosen. God chose His one and only begotten Son to come and be the Savior of the world. So Jesus is the elect. But also, in the predominant thought of the New Testament, especially Paul's writings, is that the elect are those whom God has chosen for salvation. The elect are those whom God has chosen for salvation. And He has a special love for us. Sometimes we think that we're great because we chose Him, but let me tell you, He chose you. And He came into your life and He did a work of grace in you. And you saw His beauty and you called out to Him. You saw your need for the Savior because He chose you. So who are the angels going to gather? They're going to gather Christians. Are you a child of God? Well, He's going to come get you. He's going to come get you. And if you look at... um, Matthew 13 and a few other places in the Bible, what, what, what we believe is going to happen as he gets us is that he's going to send his angels. Matthew 25, 40, well, I'm sorry, Matthew 13, several different places it says that Jesus is going to send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom everything, everyone that causes sin and all lawbreakers and he's going to throw them into the fiery furnace. 1 Thessalonians 4, we look at that where it says that the Lord is going to descend with the um, sound of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, and, and we will be caught up with Him. Well, some people believe that that's the rapture of the church. Well, my understanding of that is that is different. It's that Jesus, and I could be wrong. This is one of those things that I don't speak with huge conviction with, but I want to submit the idea to you, and, and you figure it out and let me know what you get. But I believe that Jesus is going to be coming down in the clouds, and he's going to send his angels out, and he's going to gather the elect, and they're going to be caught up with him in the air, as First Thessalonians chapter, it's three, four or three. Um, I read it like over and over again yesterday. But we're going to be up there, and then he's going to send his angels to the earth for judgment. And after that, we're going to come, and, and, and Jesus is going to, we're going to have the resurrection of our bodies, we're going to get new bodies that are immortal and beautiful and awesome, that work, that don't have any pain. And um, God's going to set up His kingdom. And what that looks like, the details of that are a bigger question than what we can get into today. But it's a beautiful thing. It's good news. Let's move on to verse 28 through 30. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. 
As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. When Jesus talks about the fig tree, it makes me think of my daffodils. I hear the house in Gatesville, we got daffodils. Middle of January, end of January, you see these little green things shooting up through the brown mulch or all around the house. And it's kind of weird because you don't expect to see green things shooting up in the middle of January. But by the middle of February, you see little flowers starting to form. And then by the end of February and early March, bright yellow, shiny flowers. And every year that I see that, I think springtime's coming. It's not going to be winter forever. What Jesus is doing in these verses is he's just taking a simple illustration from nature, from everyday life. And he's telling them that there are ways that you can know that the return of Christ is near. But I really do think that that's the only simple thing about these three verses. (laughs) We just all looked at each other hoping that someone else would give answers to the other person and explain this to us at our table. So, verse 29 says, when you see these things taking place. And then verse 30 it says... This generation will not pass away until all these things. What are these things? That's the question. What are these things? Verse 29 says, when you see these things taking place, you know he's near. You know he's close. Verse 30 says, this generation won't pass away until these things take place. I have wrestled with this and wrestled with this and wrestled with this. And I don't know what it means. I, I see that... Jesus could be referring to the destruction of the temple, which happened less than 40 years after he said this, and that generation was still alive. But he says all these things, and he just talked about the second return of Christ, and that hasn't happened yet. So I'm going to... I'll tell you one thing I am convinced of, is that my understanding is limited, and I can't tell you and reveal to you all the answers to this, like a few of you were hoping that I was going to do. I just don't know. I've got a list... Of why I feel, I've got a list of different ideas that support different interpretations. I can pass those on to you if you like, but for our purposes here today at this hour, I don't believe it would be helpful. So come see me afterward if you want to get into that more, and that's fine. Some people look at these three verses and they believe that it's Israel. The United Nations recognized the nation of Israel as a sovereign state in 1948. And while that was a great victory for the Jewish people and something that, that should have happened, we usually don't interpret the Bible that way. It's not safe to watch CNN and read your newspaper and to force things into a passage. Now, there are great Bible teachers, including John Corson. I've heard him present this twice in the last week or two. There are great Bible teachers that believe this. And I feel strongly that it's a forced interpretation onto the text. I think we get... Now, it is true that the fig tree is a symbol of Israel. We saw that in uh, chapter 11 when Jesus cursed the fig tree and cleansed the temple. But I believe that the point of this parable is not about what type of tree it is. But it's about what the tree does. Jesus wants us to be ready. He wants us to know that he can return at any single time. Now, some people have used these three verses and they have said 
They, written, they wrote books about it and made huge predictions, and they, they, they titled their book, 88 Reasons That the Rapture is Going to Happen in 1988. Well, we know how that turned out. Okay? Currently, right now, there's a group called 2028end. You can go to the website, 2028end.com. And they are proving, they say, from this passage that a rapture will happen in 2021 and that the end of the world and final judgment is going to begin in 2028. This is dangerous, especially when you read verse 32, which we'll get to in just a moment. We must approach these things with humility, but we also have to recognize our limits and not make bold statements like this. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. We get to verse 31. This is good news. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I I get this mixed up. Do you get this mixed up? I look at all that I see. I look at heaven and earth. I look at my daily routine. I look at things that are physical. And I think, you know, this stuff's solid. This stuff ain't going nowhere. I expect this building to be here tomorrow morning when I come to work in my office to to do what I do during the week. And I, I, I expect my house to be there when I get back there in a couple hours and all this stuff. And I expect the sun to rise up tomorrow morning. Anybody else like that? But then Jesus says stuff and sometimes I forget it. I get this backwards. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But so, so we got to order our lives around this to trust the promises and the word of God. Quit thinking what you want to think and grab hold of what, God, what is true according to God and apply that to your life. But this is also very comforting. And when I put myself in the shoes of the Jewish disciples that are following Jesus... It's very comforting because the temple and the entire city of Jerusalem, which was for them was everything. It was so important. That can all be wiped away by the Roman army. And you know what? It doesn't change the truth of God. Gates County could be wiped off the map completely and God still loves you as much as he did when he poured out his blood for you on that cross 2,000 years ago. This is good news here. And this is comforting Because no matter what happens to our circumstances, no matter what happens to our world, if we trust Him and if we believe what He says, we're going to be okay. Nobody can change what He says. No enemy can thwart His plan. Let us trust His Word. So now we get to verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So concerning that day, what is that day? That day is the day when Jesus returns. That day is the day when He comes in power and clouds and great glory to send His angels to gather His elect from the four winds. The Old Testament uses this phrase a lot, that day. They, the Old Testament calls it the day of the Lord. Okay, Jesus doesn't call it that here, but that, I believe that's what He's talking about. I'm pretty convinced of that. So when you see that day... In a prophetic passage, he's talking about the day of the Lord. He's talking about that final day when God makes everything right. And, you know, the 1988 and the 2028 people, they, they must not read this verse. Jesus didn't know. How can they know? Anyone who ever says to you, we know when he's coming back, say no, that's not correct. But he says, I don't even know. The angels in heaven don't know. The Son doesn't know. But only the Father. I don't really know how that works out up in heaven. We all know that the Bible teaches that that God is on His throne and Jesus is at His right hand. I picture it kind of like this. This is divine speculation. I could be totally wrong. 
But I think one day the Father's going to go up to the Son and He's going to say, Son, it's time. Let's go do what we've been planning. It's time to do that. And then Jesus is going to know exactly what to do and He's going to go and do it. And this keeps us waiting. And it encourages a sense of expectancy. It keeps us from falling asleep. And the whole point of 32 through 37 is warning us that we need to be awake when He shows up. Because we cannot predict the moment that He is going to return, we have to be ready at every moment. And that's kind of what all these verses from 32 through 37 say. In one sense, this passage is super basic, super easy, and is to the point. I like it when people are to the point. As to the point as I ever see Jesus get. Verse 33, be on guard. Keep awake. These commands were in the passage that Chuck covered last week too. Same exact words. There are 17 commands in all of chapter 13. And many of them are these two. Be on guard and keep awake. Verse 33, for you do not know when the time will come. So we don't know when He's coming, so we need to be on guard. We need to stay awake. Verse 34 is a parable, actually. It's a parable. Jesus says, It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home, puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands a doorkeeper to stay awake. Here's, I get three things from this verse. Number one, God owns it all. Number two, He has put His servants in charge. We are stewards or managers of His work. And He said elsewhere, to whom much is given, much is required. But you know, if He only gave you a little bit, then you better do something with that too. What has He given you? Are you being faithful with what He's given you? Do you have spiritual gifts that you're not using? Is God nudging you and pushing you out of your comfort zone? Does God want you to give to something? Or does God want you to go serve somewhere? Or does God want you to sell everything you have and give it to the poor like He tells some folks to do? What is it that God wants you to do that you're not doing? He's left you in charge of His house. And He's here in a spiritual sense because He lives within us, but He's not here in a physical sense. But on that day, He will be here on a physical sense. And He will judge us based on our works and what we've done. Are you doing what you're supposed to be doing with all of His stuff? With all of the time He's given you? With all of the resources He's given you? Are you being faithful? Or are you shying away and being afraid and not doing the things that He tells you to do? Are you playing around and toying with sin? Are you playing with fire? Are you giving yourself over to dishonesty? Are you cheating? Are you cheating your boss? Are you fudging the numbers? Are you lying to your family? Are you lying to your friends? Do you come here on Sunday morning one person, and are you a different person the rest of the week? Jesus is going to return and He's going to ask you what you've done with what He's given you. You must take this seriously. There should be fear and trembling in each of us. And if we're not sure if we're doing what's right, then we need to tell at least one or two or three other people. And choose some people who are more spiritually mature than you are. Who can pull you out of it. 
You can tell others too. But find someone who's strong enough to help you, who can bring restoration to you and healing to you. And don't try to walk through this alone if you are not in the right place. So we see from verse 34 that God owns it all. We see secondly, He's put His servants in charge. That's us. We have to take care of what God's given us. And third, we see, well I guess I've already said this. God has given each of us a work to do. What is that work that He has for you today and in this season of life? What is it that God is commanding you? What is your contribution to the body of Christ? What is your contribution to the world that we live in today? See, at Hope Fellowship, God has called us to make disciples new ones and stronger ones. I warn you of the seriousness of this because I'm commanded to make stronger disciples just like you are. And if you're playing around or fooling around with sin, if you're getting off track, if you're getting off the narrow path, and I'm telling you, get back on it because it will not go good for you. And you will be hurt and wounded and you will not bring glory to God as you get off that narrow path. But I also know each of you has a contribution to make in this community and in this church. Are you making it? Are you doing what it is that God wants you to do with the gifts that He's given you? It is my passion to present... Every person here is a mature and faithful servant. That was Paul's idea in Colossians 1. He wanted to present everyone as a mature and faithful servant. And as you grow in maturity, you will discover the work that He has prepared for you. So verse 34 is the parable. God owns it all. He puts us in charge of what He's given. He has something for us to do. And then verse 35, 36, and 37 is just like He's just continuing to drive the point home. He's continuing to say how important this is. He applies the parable of verse 34. In verse 35, therefore stay awake. Now I want to speak to my children and all children in the room. This does not mean that you don't have to take a nap. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about something very different. Therefore stay awake. You do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Verse 37, what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. He was talking to four people when he said this. But he says it to all. He says it to all people. Believer and unbeliever like everyone who's ever lived after he said this, this applies to. He's saying to all, stay awake. In summary, well, not summary yet, but... If we didn't think that Christ was coming back, or if we thought that we knew when He would be here, we would live with less hope and less accountability. What do I mean by that? If we didn't think He was coming back, then we would have no reason to think that anything in the world would get better. But because He's coming back, we can have hope because we know He's good, righteous, and just, and He's going to make everything right. If he wasn't coming back, what accountability would we have? So if we don't believe in his second coming, then we have no accountability. There's no judgment. And that's a problem. Think about it like this too. He didn't tell us when he's coming back. But if he did tell us when he was coming back, what hope would we have today if it really was 2028? What hope would we have? Would we just feel like victims? Would we have any incentive to do anything? What accountability would we have? If we knew exactly when he was coming back, we wouldn't have to stay awake necessarily. 
We could just make sure we got our act together the day before or the hour before you returned, couldn't we? See, the genius of God is amazing here because He told us we're coming back. He's coming back. And that gives us hope and accountability. But He told us He wouldn't tell us when. And that also creates hope. That also creates accountability because I know today I want my life to be in order in case He does come. And I know today or this week or this year if my life is awful and I'm the victim of betrayal or I'm the victim, if I'm a refugee fleeing from Syria or Northern Africa or Central Africa or if I'm a slave in the southeastern U.S. in the early 1800s, I have hope that he might come back today. I have hope that he's going to make all these bad things, all these wrong things. He's going to make it right. So I ask you today, are you lazy? Do you take the commands of Jesus seriously? I spoke with a gentleman this week at the dump. I was pleading with him to believe in Jesus, but you know what? He's gone to church his whole life. And he had just told me how he was involved in awful type of sin, boasting about it. And then we start talking about Jesus and he immediately changes his story. And he's, he, he just puts on this preacher's outfit and it was sickening. It was so upsetting to me. And I said, I said, Mr. Well, I said, hey, Mr. What's the greatest commandment? I don't know what you're talking about. I said, it's one of the most basic teachings of Scripture. Anyone who's been to church as long as you have. And it was going on 80 years. Anyone who's been to church as much as you have should know this. And he got so nervous, so uncomfortable, a little bit irritated. I said, the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbors, yourself. But he didn't know that. And I said, said, Jesus said, if you don't repent, you perish. But God loves you and He invites you to come into His family and to turn from your sin. He will wipe away all these things that you were just boasting about to me ten minutes ago. I don't think you're ready, sir. I don't think you're ready. You're not awake. You're sleeping. Would you come? So the question I ask him, I ask you. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you take His commands seriously? Is He your greatest love or are there idols in your life? And if there are, then... Cast them aside. I have a lot in common with that man at the dump. And I think you do too. I've participated in the same type of sin that he was boasting of. And the good news to me is the same good news to him is the same good news to you. Is that the great judge of the universe who we're waiting for, has already came and He was judged for us so that we do not have to be judged. He was on a throne and He came and He suffered and He was cast aside as a criminal. At His second coming, He's bringing judgment. At His first coming, He received Judgment. And this message is the gospel. This is the good news. This is what I was sharing with that man at the dump just a few days ago. And this is what I will share with him again the next time I see him. Is that the good news is 
That we, while we deserve to be cast aside and completely rejected from all the blessing of God, Jesus came and He went through that for us. Instead of us going through darkness and the fires of hell for all eternity, Jesus goes through the darkness. He suffers the penalty. He suffers the punishment. I want to ask you, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus died and was punished on your behalf so that you could be forgiven? It is the truest, most wonderful story in all the world. There is nothing like it. It is the perfect story. It is the only thing that can give us hope. It is the only incentive or motivation that can lead us to stay awake. We don't stay awake because we're supposed to and because we get our act together. We stay awake. We stay ready for His coming because we see what He did for us. And we love Him and we want to worship Him because of that. And we know that He was so good to us the first time He's going to came when we weren't even aware of it. How good is He going to be to us when He comes back? And when we see Him. And when He takes us up all out of this awful situation that we're in down here. And when He cleans it all up. And then when He brings us back to the new heavens, new earth, the millennial kingdom, whatever word you want to put with it. And there's several different ways you can do. He brings us back and He reigns on His throne. And it's beautiful and it's perfect. Our hope. It's huge. And it is certain. And there is so much good news. And we can know, beyond the shadow of doubt, that He's coming back for us. And that He will receive us. Because when He came the first time, His body was broken on the cross. And His blood was poured out for us. Brother, sister, child of God, He loves you. Set your hope in Him. Stay awake. Be ready. And let's come to the table and enjoy His presence. Uh, Brother Dwight, Brother Joe, would y'all serve us today?